0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Real View podcast. I am your host, Allison Wiley. Joining me today is our very special guest. You all heard from him during the RPAC breakfast at our annual convention. But I would like to welcome to the show. Mo Alathy, he is the founding executive director of Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service and the former communications director for the Democratic National Committee. He has been an influential figure on the front line of politics for two decades and is a frequent commentator on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News and PBS NewsHour. He is a veteran of four presidential campaigns, including serving as senior spokesman on Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign. Mo, welcome to the show and welcome back to Ohio Realtors.
1: Always exciting to be with you guys.
0: Yeah, we're super excited to have you on, and you gave such a great presentation um, at our RPAC our breakfast. And I just thought it would be great to share a little bit more about what you talked about during that breakfast to maybe some people that were not in attendance because I think there was some really great points that you made, and you have a really great pulse and perspective on this world of politics that we're living in today. But before we get started on that, I want to hear a little bit more about you, um, your career journey. Um, I know I just highlighted a few of the things that you've been involved with, but um, it's much more extensive than that. And did you always know that politics was something that you wanted to get into?
1: I didn't even know it was something I could get into, to be honest. I mean, I'd always been politically interested. I grew up in Southern Arizona, was you know a kid who volunteered for my local congressman's campaigns and stuff like that. I left Arizona to come to college here in D.C. at Georgetown because I wanted to go into the Foreign Service. I wanted to go into diplomacy. And that was the trajectory I thought I was on until my senior year of college when I didn't pass the Foreign Service exam to get into the Foreign Service. And I was hell bent on going in and figured I would take the exam every year until I did. But I needed something to do until then. And so I was working A terrible job as a paralegal right after I graduated up in New York City. And there was one particularly bad day at the office. And I came home and I popped open a beer and made myself a sandwich and decided to watch the election returns. This was election night 1994. And I watched the Democratic Party get decimated in that 1994 Republican Revolution and kind of had an epiphany moment that maybe that's what I should do until I got into the Foreign Service. So I went back to grad school, got a master's in political management and started working on campaigns, took the exam a couple more times. Each time got a little bit further in the process, not quite there. And then finally was working on this really exciting race in New Mexico in 1998, a congressional race, passed the exam while I was working on that campaign. And my start date with the Foreign Service was supposed to be three weeks after election day which I thought was perfect. And then we won. We won the race. And I was overwhelmed by the adrenaline of that victory. The next day, the congressman-elect asked me to come to Washington with him as his press secretary. And it was off to the races. I called up the Foreign Service the next day and withdrew.
0: That's awesome. And you kind of have just been on this incredible career trajectory ever since then. What advice do you have for anyone out there um, interested in getting um, involved with a political career, maybe along the same lines of some of the things that you've done throughout your life? What advice do you have? Yeah,
1: a couple of things. You know, I oftentimes get our students here at Georgetown ask me, like, what's the path? How do I do this? And my response is, I have no idea. I have no idea what your path is, because if you ask 10 different people in politics how they got their start, you get like 15 different answers. But I would say this, particularly to younger people, if you're interested in politics, if you're interested in campaigns, just go do it. Just go sign up. Go be a volunteer. Go, if you can, just dedicate some time to doing it. And if it's something then you want to pursue, work hard. Take whatever job is available to you. I always say in politics with each job, you want to do two things, collect new skills and collect new people, right? Build out that network because that's um, always going to help you get the next thing. And then the other thing I'd say is... I say to the students here at Georgetown, in Washington, in the nation's capital, that you know, many of whom came here because they want to be in D.C., my advice to them is always, if you want to end up in D.C., get the hell out of D.C. for a while. And what I mean by that is real politics doesn't happen in Washington. Real politics happens at the local level, at the state level. The folks listening to this podcast know that, right? You all are on the front lines of that. Getting to actually engage with real people, with real voters, working in a local campaign or helping out with local government, state government, getting engaged at that level gives you the perspective that most people here in Washington seem to have forgotten, seem to have lost. That remembering that in this story that we are all trying to tell, about our political environment, that the hero of the story are not the politicians. The hero of the story are the voters. And engaging with them and really understanding them is the single most important skill anyone involved in politics can, can have.
0: Speaking on voting, um, the opportunity to vote is something you know we should all appreciate and take advantage of. Do you see this upcoming election having a higher voter turnout? And what can we do as leaders in the community to help promote voting?
1: It feels like it's going to be you know, a, a relatively high turnout for a midterm election. Right? It's no secret that there's a huge drop off in turnout between a presidential year and a midterm year. But it feels like that there is a higher level of engagement now. There's two sort of emotions that really drive people's political activity, either hope and aspiration or fear and anger and anxiety. And I kind of feel like a lot of people, regardless of their partisanship, right now are feeling some of that fear and anger and, and anxiety, and they wanted, they're looking for an outlet. An election is our best outlet for folks to engage with that. I wish more people were engaging out of a sense of hope and optimism. But as a result of people's anxiety, whether it's people on the right who are freaking out over inflation and crime and a sense of alienation or people on the left who are freaking out about also a sense of alienation and fear over democracy and, you know, maybe motivated by the Supreme Court decision on a woman's right to choose. A lot of the country is dissatisfied with the direction and want to take a, take measures to, to change it. So I think you'll see a lot of that. What I hope more leaders do when encouraging people to vote is give them something to vote for instead of just highlighting what to vote against. I'm all for pointing out the flaws as you see it on the other side, right? Cuz elections are about choices, and so you want to paint a picture of what that choice is, but I think right now too many people are only focusing on one side of that choice, why not the other side? And both sides can do a little bit better of talking about why that, right? Trying to be a little bit more uplifting about the positive picture of the world that they want voters to see. I would encourage more people to do that.
0: Yeah, that, that's so true. And, and I know um, true definitely in, in my sense, you know, you kind of don't think about that other side, you get so wrapped up in, you know, <laughs> the other side of things that, you know, you forget to, to vote off of that hope and what that can um, bring to um, our country. And, you know, it seems as if our world of politics is more polarizing than ever. And in your RPEC breakfast speech, You gave a great kind of perspective about this, kind of put it into perspective compared to the past and in other things in history. And you even dated it back to the time of our founding fathers. Tell us a little bit more about that perspective and why these times may not be as different as we may think.
1: Yeah, in some ways, this is just who we are, right? In some ways, it's different. Where it's the same is, I mean, if you go back to the founding of the republic, we've had one nonpartisan president in our history. George Washington, in the race to succeed him between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the Federalists versus the, the non Federalists or the Democratic Republicans, Adams and Jefferson, who had once been friends, used some pretty brutal rhetoric about one another, I and mean, it took years to repair some of the things they said about each other make us seem tame with in today's language we had you know a political falling out between the sitting vice president and the former secretary of treasury which resulted in a duel we had members of congress visiting the floor of the senate and beating physically beating united states senators we had a period where we went to war with ourselves Over the question of whether or not it was okay for states, for some states, to put people in bondage. In World War II put Japanese Americans in internment camps simply for being Japanese, Japanese of Japanese descent. And then you know, you look at the entire decade of the 1960s, where there were riots and protests and police beating individuals who were just simply trying to exercise their right to vote and college students getting shot by the national guard for exercising their first amendment rights on their campuses and political assassination after assassination so we have always always been polarized and and our politics has always had a level of edge to it or worse so by those standards this is not that unique having said that I do worry that we're on a trajectory that would make this unique. We're seeing signs of that. We're seeing more than a third of Americans in polling are saying political violence might be warranted at times. That's concerning. You see our country becoming more polarized and separated at a sort of at scale, in part because we're now doing this in the digital age. And that has changed everything. If you think about the re- some of the rhetoric we're hearing today, it's not too dissimilar from a lot of the political record uh, rhetoric we heard a century ago. Century ago, we were transforming from an agrarian based economy to an industrial based economy. Today we are transitioning from an industrial-based economy to an information and digital-based economy. A lot of the same anxieties of economic and cultural upheaval are freaking people out. But in the digital age, it's happening faster, the battle lines are being drawn in different ways, and there's a higher degree of misinformation and disinformation. It's all happening at scale, and that concerns me because it's harder to put the genie back in the bottle when things are moving at lightning fast speed.
0: Do you think that's kind of the main reason why we may be heading into maybe more unprecedented times is just with the constant flow of information and how quickly things are happening and how you can Google anything and who knows the answer that you're going to get when, when your search results come up? Is that kind of what you attribute some of that to?
1: I think some of it, yeah. I mean, some of it is the technology that is actually designed to bring us closer to one another. It is doing so in many profound ways. But one area where it's not is politically and culturally, where it's actually driving us further apart. The algorithms, right? Anytime you read a news story on your phone, from whatever news app you finish reading it at the bottom says if you like that story here's three more that you might want to read that sound exactly like the one you just read we're not seeing algorithms that say if you like that you should read these two stories with from a completely different perspective no we're we're staying in a filter bubble you follow someone on social media and the algorithm says if you follow this person you should follow these four people who are saying the same thing as the person you just followed. And so you couple that with our tendency to sort ourselves. I talked about this at the breakfast, and this is something realtors understand inherently, but for the past 40, 50 years, sociologists have been talking about this phenomenon called the, the big sort, where people are increasingly moving into neighborhoods surrounded by people who think and sound and often look like they do. We're sorting ourselves geographically. That's also happening at school. That's happening at work. It's certainly happening on social media. It's how we get our news from places that already reinforce what we already think. So we're already self-dividing. And now, because of big data and algorithms, we're connecting at scale to people who we already identify with and being isolated at scale from those who are different than us. And that's really calcifying these filter bubbles, these echo chambers that we all live in, making it really hard to break through to even acknowledge or understand other legitimate perspectives. That's creating a very toxic environment politically.
0: This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. When we keep ourselves in those bubbles, keep ourselves surrounded by people who are acting like us and thinking like us and voting like us, what repercussions does that have in a political sense? And what can we do to change that and really expand our inner circle so we're not so locked in on that bubble?
1: I mean, I think the the repercussions are pretty profound and pretty obvious. If you, every input in your life is telling you that the sky is green and somebody else comes up and says, what a beautiful blue sky we have today, you're going to think that person's crazy because every other data point in your life, every other person you talk to, everything you read is telling you the sky is green. So when we isolate ourselves from other perspectives, it's harder to understand those other perspectives. And when we can't understand them, we demonize them. That's just human nature. And I'm not suggesting that we will find common ground all the time if we change that dynamic, but we might detoxify the rhetoric. And I think we would also be better advocates for our own perspective. If I took the time to listen, you know, if my side, Democrat in 2016, hadn't run around saying every single Trump voter is a racist or a misogynist, we would have heard the ones that weren't and actually said something to them that might've addressed their concerns. But by calling them all racist and misogynist, there's no chance they were ever gonna listen to anything we had to say. The same is true in reverse. If every time I'm on Fox News, everyone who watches just assumes that because I have a D next to my name, I'm a socialist, member of the woke mob, then they will never listen to what my actual concerns are and never address them. And so because of that, we're actually becoming worse advocates for our own perspective if the goal is ever to try to bring people along with us. get them We're not trying to meet them where they're at. We are expecting them to meet us where we're at, and if they don't, to hell with them. That's not a healthy way to actually persuade, to actually affect
0: outcomes yeah so true and i think it's some work we all can do you know no matter where you fall in your beliefs in voting um records you know we can all do better in in trying to you know come more together and meet more in the middle and trying to see each other as not those so extreme um you know ways that you had just mentioned you know one way or another i think you know we all have work to do
1: watch a different news station on occasion read a different newspaper on occasion. The majority of Americans right now say that they don't have friends or family outside of their political view, outside of their faith, outside of their race, outside of their economic class. Engage with people outside of those buckets and listen to them before you speak. Listen to what their motivations are. You might be surprised. You don't have to agree with, where, with their prescription, but you might be surprised that you actually share the same motivation. And that's the starting point. So those are a few things that we can do as individuals because it's going to have to start there.
0: Do you see this changing at all? This how polarized we are right now, how, you know, we are on totally different sides with things. Do you see any of this changing in the shorter, long term and becoming maybe less polarizing?
1: I hope so. I mean, I think there's some signs that particularly younger voters, there's this rap that they have that that the people have on young voters, that they are not open to different perspectives. And that just hasn't been my experience. Just this week, we hosted Mike Pence on campus here at Georgetown for a talk. And this is a pretty progressive student body. We had a thousand students waiting in line, wanting to hear him, wanting to ask him questions. Most of them were not Mike Pence supporters. They seem bought in to this notion that they will be better if they can understand different perspectives. We see study after study that shows young people are actually less driven by partisan ideology. They're more interested in results. They're more willing to do what it takes to get results. Right now, they're just not engaging in politics because they don't think politics is a place to get results. They'd all rather run off to Silicon Valley to change the world than do this. And so that's something we need to change. But if they are truly, if these studies are right and the students that I see here on our college campus are any reflection, I think they will be better than we were, than my generation was at this and maybe begin to turn it around. But this is gonna take a sort of a, a whole of society approach. And I, th- yeah, I think it's gonna be a long slog to get us back to just like our normal level of dysfunction <laughs> right? and, well, and polarization, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, I was like, how did we get to this point to where it's so bad, you know? I mean, like what, can you, you know, remember kind of what it, it took to get us to this place, to how we became? This way? Yeah,
1: and and I kinda I referenced this a little bit earlier and, and I talked about this a little bit at the breakfast. But you know, for most of our history, we have had one, you know, we've been living on this left versus right axis. And there's been one central question that has dominated almost every debate we have had. What is the right size and scope of government? With the political right saying it should be more limited, the political left saying there's a more activist role for it. That has driven most of us for so long, but I would say going back about 50 years, as we began to lose more and more trust in our institutions, we began to shift from left versus right to front versus back. People feel like they're stuck at the back of the line, that everybody else is moving ahead of them in line and our institutions aren't doing anything to help them, whether it's government, business, the media, academia, that the system is rigged to help everybody else but me and mine. I've been stuck at the back of the line. Political candidates that have been the most successful are the ones who've tapped into that. Some of them do it from a more hopeful and aspirational perspective. People like Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Some of them from a more angry perspective, right? Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, who who was ascendant there for a little while. But they're all kind of tapping into the same sense that the system is leaving people behind and we've got to do something to help them move ahead. That trust in institutions is only getting worse. Every year in all these surveys where they test people's trust in institutions, it's eroding for every major institution in this country except for the military and firefighters. People do not trust business, they do not trust government, they do not trust the media, they do not trust academia. So I think where we can all as institutional leaders do a better job is trying to, once again, reconnect with people where they're at and take those steps to show we're actually here for them. Because right now they think we're here for ourselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to know, you know, with the election so close, just a few um, weeks, days now, almost we're in um away, What is the poll? In some places it's
1: already started.
0: Yeah, yeah, I uh, know. With early voting. Yeah, I know. Um, we've been open for early voting now as well. And I know... Um, The absentee voting ballots are going out or some have already received them. What is the pulse around around D.C., around um, where where you're at down in Georgetown? What are what is the pulse and what are the vibes of things as the election comes nearer and nearer?
1: I, I, I don't think anybody really knows what to expect. I think this is unlike most midterm elections based on the historical standards that we all study and know and based some of our political decisions off of here in Washington, this should be a route for Republicans. But it's different this year, and there seems to be a lot more competitiveness. Democrats are a lot more competitive than history tells us they should be. We have gone from the days of, and we'll see, I could be completely wrong on this, but I think we have gone from the days of major pendulum swings, And we're now just seeing the pendulum kind of nudged one way or or another. I think most people would agree that it is likely Republicans take the House of Representatives. But what I think it's looking more and more like is that instead of a major massive swing, we will move from a narrow Democratic majority to a narrow Republican majority, just a nudge to the other side of the line. The Senate seems to still be a jump ball. Right now, it's tied with The Democratic vice president is the tiebreaker. But I think most people believe that the final results will fall anywhere from a two-seat Republican majority to a two-seat Democratic majority. There's some belief that Democrats might actually pick up a couple of seats. Or it could just be status quo. It could just remain a tied Senate. That's as likely a scenario as anything else. Governors' races around the country are more competitive. There are a couple of states that Democrats will pick off there are a couple of states that Republicans think they could pick off. So it might be status quo or maybe it, the Democrats actually pick up a seat. I think people are trying to make sense as to what this all means. I think it just means that a lot of the historical forces that have driven our politics, they're being driven today by this polarization. And it might, you know, we might just be that evenly divided that every major election moving forward is a pretty close to evenly divided scenario
0: going to be interesting, going to be interesting. I know we are in a very tight race um, here in Ohio. Our Senate race is is coming down to the wire and that will be interesting to see how that shakes out. And before we wrap up, Mo, I want to hear a little bit more about the work you do at Georgetown. I know we mentioned a little bit of, you know, the work you do there and and the students that you are involved with, but I want to hear more about that and um, maybe talk a little bit more about the students that you're working with and kind of what the future of politics looks like from what you're seeing.
1: Yeah. So I left the field of politics about seven and a half years ago to come back to my alma mater and and launch this institute. And, And I'm not an academic, right? Like I don't have a PhD. I'm not teaching classes, but I bring 20 years worth of sort of experience in the field. And so that's sort of what we're trying to do is bridge the divide between the academic and the practical worlds of public service. So what we do is a couple of things. One, we just try to pull back the curtain and show these you know, give these kids a a look at how this process, it really works. They're being taught by some of the most brilliant political scientists in the classroom, but then they come to us to get the real world perspective. And we try to show them the good, the bad and the ugly, the unvarnished world and being in DC, we're able to bring in tons of practitioners to actually sit down and engage with these students. And then secondly, we're really focused on this issue of polarization and how bad it is, why, and help these students I did realize what the various filter bubbles are that they live in, right? Whether it's left versus right, whether it's urban versus rural, whether it's black versus white versus brown, male versus female. The second their parents write that first tuition check to campus, they're now in a new filter bubble, the elite university filter bubble. So, help them just realize that they're what those filter bubbles are, and then equip them with the desire and the tools to pop them occasionally. And we try to do it by modeling these conversations. You know, last week we brought Secretary Buttigieg to campus and I interviewed him on stage. This week we brought Vice President Pence to campus and I interviewed him on stage. In both of those conversations, we tried to have. Productive conversations, not the stuff you see on cable news, right? Actual conversations. But then we actually try to put these students together in a room with each other, with political practitioners to have similar conversations. And the goal here is to help them, again, be better advocates for their own perspectives by better understanding other perspectives and have them have that approach before they even step out onto the field. Since we started seven years ago, every year our numbers go up. More and more students are bought in. They wanna get involved in the process and they wanna figure out how to do it better than I did it. I tell them all the time, I'm not here to teach you how to do politics. So I'm one of the guys that broke it. <laughs> I spent 20 years doing all the things people hate about politics because that's how I learned to do it. So we'll show you how we do it. You show us how to do it better, and maybe we'll all be a little better for
0: it. And that future is bright. You know, I think it's the it, when we think about what can give us hope in, in such a, <laughs> a dull looking situation, when we think about where it is today, I think that's where it lies, right? It lies with in teaching the next generation
1: and being taught by them as well right i mean I, if anything the past few years have proven to us is that democracy may be more fragile than we thought it was our institutions are only as good as the people that run them but at the same time when i see this level of activism when i see this level of energy when i see this level of interest and this desire to do it better from the next generation gives me hope that you know it may get worse before it gets better but it will get better
0: and I think that is a great note to end on that there is hope. And I know I feel better, you know, in just, in just hearing that and talking to you and thinking about, like you said, we might be in for some rough waters for the foreseeable future, but it can be calm seas ahead if we all work together and, and, um, you know, really try to, to make things better.
1: I always say we don't always get the government we deserve, but we a hundred percent get the government that we allow. And so if we say we no longer accept this and we want it done better, then we can change it. But we have to do that. We have to stop allowing what we've got now.
0: There is your mission statement to everybody listening. (laughs) Um, Go out there and make sure we are only allowing the best of governments for us. So Mo, this was so fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for being at the RPAC Breakfast. And we hope to see you soon at Ohio Realtors. I'm looking
1: forward to the next time. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohio slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions we want to hear from you? Email us at podcast at We'll see you next time.